Hi everyone, welcome to Uskogans, the international law podcast. This is episode 24. Today, our topic of discussion is about controversies over the identity of state governments, Myanmar, Venezuela, and beyond. In order to discuss this topic, I am joined by Nico Pavlopoulos, who is a PhD candidate and a teaching fellow at the University College London. His thesis explores the identity of governments in international law with the aim to provide an account of the international legal framework on the identity of governments, uh, uh, government of states in international law. Thank you so much, Nico, for being part of the podcast and to discuss this topic, which is quite interesting for me personally and is of you know contemporary relevance. So just to roll off the discussion, can you tell me why is it important for us to be as international lawyers to be able to identify the governments of any state? Sure, and first, if I can just say thanks for having me, it's truly a pleasure to be here, not least because I am also a fan of the podcast myself. Well, as, as, as you may be aware, there's a number of controversies that rise occasionally about the identity of a state's government, right? We see this at the moment in respect of Myanmar, we see it with Venezuela, and we've seen a number of other historical examples. And the importance of this is apparent from the range of contexts in which it arises as an issue. So if we take Venezuela as an example, who is the president of Venezuela is a question that has arisen in the context of litigation before the UK courts, uh, has arisen in the, the US context as well, in ICSID cases, in the organization in the American states. It's also the reason, or controversy over who is the president is also the reason why the International Monetary Fund didn't really consider in any detail a, a request by Nicolas Maduro to, to receive a loan to battle the coronavirus pandemic. So there's a range of contexts in which this arises as an issue, which I think suggests or indicates why this is an important um, So apart from question. Venezuela, Nico, uh, are there other situations or have there been other situations where such controversies have arisen in terms of you know, concurrent competing regimes over a state? Of course, there's, there's been quite a few. Um, so Myanmar is another example, which, which we can discuss uh, in greater detail as well. In terms of other recent examples, we could look to Honduras in 2009, uh, Cote d'Ivoire in 2010, the Gambia in 2016, Libya since 2015 until today. Um, and also historically, so this is not only something that's, that's been a contemporary issue, but also historically, we've seen this with, uh, in respect of China since the end of uh, the civil war there, in respect of Cambodia at a number of different times in the 70s and 80s. So it's a question that, that recurs uh, time and time again throughout sort of uh, international relations and not just in the past few years. Right. So, so for me personally, so we know the Montevideo criteria is sort of the minimum basic framework in terms of recognizing statehood. Uh, is, is there something equivalent to that when it comes to recognizing governments in international law? It's a good question. Fortunately or otherwise, 
there doesn't seem to be anything uh, like a treaty provision or some other formal legal instrument to which we can look as the starting point for for how and when we may recognize a government. Um, that said, there's been a common acceptance historically that the main pertinent consideration is effective control, right? Whoever controls the territory and population of a state has typically ordinarily comprised the government of that state. But this has all, the accuracy of that seems, seems or is questionable or open to doubt given all of these recent incidents where we see governments and presidents who aren't in effective control being recognized by a large number of states as the government or presidents, as the case may be. So, so is effective control then the only criteria? So historically, it has developed in that sense. But uh, from, let's say, for example, what comes to mind is the advent of human rights treaties, where we have the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which does talk about democratic legitimacy in, in a way. And then we have the ICCPR in Article 25 as well. So have these sort of human rights norms or generally just international law as a whole, has it traveled towards a, a place where democratic legitimacy is sort of, you know, competing against effective control? Has, has that taken place? I think that's the view that's often uh, presented in much of the literature, and it also appears to be a relevant consideration in state practice, right? So, so we see a number of states when they recognize a government or a president saying this person or this government is democratically elected. So on its face, is it does appear to be that way. At the same time, there's a number of, of governments and presidents which aren't democratically elected, but which are accepted as occupying, you know, whichever status they're, they're claiming in that regard. So it seems that despite uh, certain instruments supporting or, or enshrining some sort of uh, regard to the protection of democracy, that, that this isn't, in fact, a relevant um, or a, not a decisive, at least, consideration, which I think then begs the question of, is there any legal framework at all? So, uh, if if that is really the case in terms of you know sort of the the, the supremacy that you speak of in in terms of uh, recognizing a government of a state, how would you situate some of the actions that the Security Council, for example, has taken in in for example Haiti in 1991? So so would you say those actions were were somewhat justified under international law because you know so they sort of contradicted effective control and tried to, you know, place the democratically elected government uh, into the, into effective control, so to speak. Yeah, no, and this is a fascinating incident. Haiti, I think, is the first case where we see consensus or, or virtual consensus on, on the fact that a democratically elected government, which is ousted and has fled, continues to be accepted as such, despite the presence of, of a military regime in effective control. So to me, the answer to your question depends on whether we can 
identify some objective framework which would give us a reason to accept the democratic elected president of Haiti, which is consistent generally with the practice of states. And to my mind, that seems to be constitutionality, right? So if a specific president or government has a valid basis in the existing constitutional arrangement of a state, so if they, if they can claim power on the basis of that constitution, it seems that states and the UN Security Council and, and other uh, organs of international organizations are happy to accept um, that claim over any other, which, which to my mind suggests that there's been a shift in the law in the sense that effective control is not determinative, but rather that constitutionality will take precedence over uh, over effective control as a relevant consideration. So, so I'm I'm a bit fascinated in in terms of you know the development, the historic development of of these norms. So how would you situate the whole applicable framework uh, of the identifying state governments within the sources of law. So, so would you say they are derivative of custom? Where do they come from? That's another good question. So I would say generally there is, there is a customary legal framework, which is the basis sort of uh, of the law in this regard. There may be some variations in exactly how this law operates in the context of international organizations and so on. But generally speaking, we could see the practice of states in recognizing the government as state practice. And given the sorts of things that accompany these statements, the reference to certain objective criteria and so on, we could perhaps uh, infer or otherwise identify the existence of opinio juris from these sorts of statements and other similar conduct. Right. And just to circle back to your question, uh, sort of your answer to the constitutionality of, of certain actions. So would you say there is then an inherent sort of role that the principle of non-interference or Article 27 plays into these situations where the UN or the international community is, is only intervening insofar as there is then a, a basis for them to intervene? So how, how does sort of the, the friction between what goes on internally and, and the recognition which happens at the international level. So how does this friction play out? So this is this is a tricky one, I think. Um, the, there's this general conception, I think, that international law doesn't really deal with domestic law, that we often treat the two as separate, right? And we do see this in a number of contexts including on you know consent to to be bound by a treaty and a number of other things at the same time for certain fundamental things like who is a state organ who or what is a state organ it's precisely to the constitution of the state that we look right we look to the internal law of the state and we look to whatever other internal arrangement of power exists to identify de facto state organs and so to that extent, if we're relying on the constitution to identify the government, that doesn't, to my mind, amount to interference in any way in the affairs of another state. But questions of constitutionality are not always straightforward, right? So this is why we have sometimes constitutional crises and so on. 
in which case the practice of states and recognizing one person or another is essentially them saying we accept this person as the constitutional president or the constitutional government and and that evidence can be valuable in supporting one another claim so formally i'd say they're not in friction but in practice it becomes a little a little bit more messy uh, in that regard right so so this this then brings me to sort of so having established the legal framework this brings me to my uh, second question the second broader question is how does the act of recognition of governments take place is it sort of similar to how states are recognized or are there different ways in which states go about this process i, I would say there are analogies right so the recognition of statehood uh, seems to be possible both expressly through statements and through certain uh, other conducts, so-called implied recognition or implicit recognition. And the same is true of recognition of governments. So the clearest and, and least ambiguous type of recognition is a statement by one government of a state, right? Saying we recognize X as president or as government of, of state Y. But there are also implied forms of recognition and the, these take place essentially when there is implicit acceptance of a, a person as occupying a governmental office or as exercising or performing functions which are reserved for governments. But these can be trickier to deduce, I think, in certain contexts anyway. Right. So, so just to take this a step further, how do we distinguish between acts which are sort of recognizing a particular government, but acts which, which may perhaps be constituted as political actions? So where do you draw the line between what is a legal recognition and what is political in nature? So this distinction is often drawn, right, between, between political and legal recognition. But the, the acts that signify recognition in a legal sense, which signify the acceptance of, of a claim to, to governmental status is often political in nature. It may not be, right? You may have cases of judicial recognition, uh, which may give, be given as a different term in certain contexts, but it's essentially the same thing. So I guess the answer is that some forms of legal recognition are political in that sense and that they're performed by political organs of a state but that it's also possible to have uh, other forms of recognition like judicial recognition and of course the legal recognition may also have political consequences right so if you establish diplomatic relations with a specific government that has political implications as well so it's they're not necessarily distinct i would say and there seems to be and there is some overlap between political recognition and legal recognition right uh so just in terms of the framework that exists so imagine that the security council was not successful in 1991 within the Haiti context uh there would be a government which is not recognized internationally and then there would be a government which is recognized internationally, but but the government which is then currently in control is, is sort of not the recognized one. What I'm trying to, to 
sort of clarify the question, the question would be, do problems arise when it comes to undertaking international obligations, especially in the context where a state is, although recognized internationally, does not have effective control on ground? So, so what happens there? What problems are encountered there in that context? There seems to be, in my view, at least, at least two different types of issues, right? The one question is who can undertake the obligation, who can consent to the treaty under which obligations arise. And we've seen controversies in that regard. So for example, China participated in the um, conference for the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations through the government based in Taiwan, even though most states recognize the government based in mainland China. And that can create controversy as to whether or not China has consented to a treaty. And the second separate question is, how can a state really ensure compliance with its obligations if, if its government is operating at a hotel or, or you know, abroad or an embassy or you know, somewhere else in a totally different part of the world? And in that sense, Clearly, I think difficulties may arise, you know, in in, the, in securing the state's compliance with its obligations, um, and that that just seems to be a tricky reality of the situation, and that's one of the reasons why states uh, tend or try to make, or at least when they agree politically, to make concerted efforts to to reinstate whichever authority they think represents the state. Right. Uh, turning to sort of the, the first situation that, that we have at hand, Myanmar, I, I think it has been a very, very interesting situation. So, so, but before we go into sort of the legal aspects of it, could you just explain briefly for the audience as to what the on-ground situation is insofar as it is relevant to the discussion at hand? Sure. I think it was February 1st uh, this year after democratic elections had been held in Myanmar, um, on the day when the new government was, go was about to be sworn in uh, under the leadership of Aung San Suu Kyi, who was already state councillor and uh, the de facto sort of head of government in, the, in that context. Um, they were about to be sworn in. The military seized power arrested, detained uh, members of that group of people that was about to be sworn in as the government. And it has itself claimed power, ostensibly on the basis of certain provisions of the existing constitution of Myanmar. So now you have the, what is, what is today known as the national unity government, which is democratically elected. Uh, claiming power, but you know its members. Some of its members are under house arrest and so on. And on the other hand, we have the military, who's also claiming to be the constitutional government, and they are, of course, uh, in fact, in effective control of the state. So I think, in in terms of recognition, it, it's very interesting how you know there is a widespread denial or a rejection of of the the military's government within Myanmar. But I think for me personally, what was really interesting was how the UN representative uh, spoke out against the military and clearly defied the government. So that brings to my mind a question of, 
of there being a level of relevance in, in terms of international organization. So how is the UN supposed to act in these situations? And what do you think would happen in a context where the military wants another representative to represent them at the UN, but then we have the democratically elected government whose representative is already there. So how should the UN act and what powers does it have to deal with these situations? So how it should act is a question that I don't necessarily feel um, sort of competent to answer because they're complex political uh, questions and, you know, it's we could say that there's preference for one or the other on the basis of some consideration. But the good or bad thing, depending on, on your perspective, I guess, is that, that the UN has some flexibility in this regard, especially in certain contexts. We see that generally states are represented by the governments, including at the UN, but there is some wiggle room for the acceptance of either ostensible government without necessarily recognizing either if they don't want to, right? And, and we've seen this reluctance um, also in the context of ASEAN, the association, the association of Southeast Asian nations, where there are some member states that are supportive of the elected government and are calling the, the seizure of power a coup. On the other hand, we have, there are other member states which, uh, are more supportive of, of the military's uh, stance and claim to power. And so you have some countries calling it a coup, other countries saying this is their internal affairs, we're not dealing with it, uh, essentially avoiding taking a stance either way. And we still have the military representative, I think it was uh, yesterday or today, who attended a meeting at ASEAN, seemingly without being accepted as president. So. I say that with the caveat of not having been able to see any official sort of or publicly available information, but there has been, there seems to have been some space uh, to, to discuss with the general, but without necessarily accepting that, that his seizure of power has been successful as a matter of law. Right. So procedurally speaking, is, is how how would this go about, at least insofar as the UN is concerned, assuming it was to give preference to one over the other? So it depends on the precise organ, because each organ has its own rules, right? But maybe we can we can start with the General Assembly and sort of uh, branch out if you'd like. At the General Assembly, there's certain rules that uh, rules of procedure, one of which is that a state can be represented through certain office holders who are members of the government or through accredited representatives. And when it's through accredited representatives, each state will submit its, its credentials to the UN, which then get reviewed by typically by credentials committee and then get approved or rejected by the general assembly itself. And the approval of those credentials typically occurs only when, when there's enough support for a specific government, right? Because that signals recognition when you accept that the credentials issued by a political authority emanate from the state. But the interesting thing in my view is that, that the General Assembly can also allow states to participate on what is called a provisional basis. That is 
without necessarily approving the credentials and without accepting, therefore, that a specific political authority uh, comprises the government of a state. And for that reason, it's possible, if we bring this back to Myanmar, for the UN General Assembly to allow either representative without necessarily uh, recognizing one or the other, which could be valuable in, in ensuring the support uh, of states which aren't willing to recognize the claimant in question. Right. And, and does the Security Council have any overriding power as it does in, in, in a lot of circumstances? So does it have any, any overriding powers in, in this context? In an indirect sense, I guess it could do. So on its face, the first thing uh, we often look to is the General Assembly. So in 1950, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's resolution 396, uh, under which the General Assembly, and I don't remember the exact wording, but something along the lines of suggested that, uh, suggests that its view on the identity of a government in effect is uh, considered and you know considered by other organs and that that provides the basis for the view taken by other organs but then again the security council as as um, you and many of your listeners will surely know has the power to take decisions with which member states uh, which member states are obliged to accept and to carry out. And in this context, if the Security Council was to take a decision on who is the government, something that, that we've seen only exceptionally, if, if, if ever, uh, then that would oblige states to, to accept the view of the Security Council. But I think in this case, it's quite unlikely. There seems to be no consensus, which is why we've seen state presidential statements rather than resolutions from the UN Security Council as a whole. Right. Uh, so in terms of Myanmar, would you have any other concluding thoughts within the context of this discussion or are we free to proceed to Venezuela, the second part of the, the discussion? I'm happy to proceed and we can come back if anything comes, comes back. Absolutely. That's okay so, with you. So, so, so turning to Venezuela, could you then first start like we did with Myanmar with the, with the context of what the situation is? Sure. Um, elections were held, presidential elections were held sometime in 2018, if I'm not mistaken. Nicolas Maduro was already the incumbent president. He claims to have won the presidential election, under which he, he then sort of retained his, his claim to power in 2019 when, when the elections were, when the result of the election was to take effect. But the election was not really accepted by all actors domestically or internationally as having been free or fair. And on the basis of, of those concerns about irregularities in the electoral process, the National Assembly, the, the, legislative, the main legislative body of Venezuela, declared uh, Nicolas Maduro to have usurped authority. And on the basis of one interpretation of Venezuela's constitution, 
it's then president, so the president of the National Assembly, what we'd call in the UK, the, uh, sort of the Speaker of the House, although the roles aren't necessarily identical, um, claimed also to be interim president until fresh elections were held. So again, we have two rival presidents, each claiming power on the basis of some understanding of Venezuela's constitution, and the responses of states are very much divided as to who they accept as the president. Right. So, so you've mentioned that international community has sort of, you know, rejected this this election, and then there has been, if we've seen, a lot of support from the international community. So, would you constitute that? support as tantamount to having recognition insofar as we speak legally uh, for Gaido? Largely speaking, much of the support, I would say, constitutes recognition, right? Uh, and this is especially clear where we see the express statements, where we see a states giving him access to diplomatic premises and treating his representatives as diplomats, accredited diplomats of Venezuela. But we also have to take care, I think, before we jump to conclusions about a state recognizing someone as president, because there's a number of states which accept why those representatives um, as his personal envoy, as his representatives, not necessarily as representatives of Venezuela as such. And that shows that states do have some leeway, right, to retain relations with more than one political authority without necessarily, um, you know, them taking a decisive stance on the issue. So, so in my opinion then, and I was reading this, this uh... Fantastic piece on opinion Juris by Frederica Pedo, if, if I'm pronouncing the name correctly, and others. So, so, so what I could gather from that was that a large number of states, although have recognized politically Gayado's, you know, presidency, but none of them have taken actions insofar as diplomatically. So, so we've seen those actions be taking place, for example, in the U.S. and Costa Rica, but that hasn't been the large trend. So based on that, would you say that insofar as the identity of government is concerned, legally, Gallardo is, is perhaps far less behind uh, in, 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 in his rec recognition as opposed to what he is politically? That seems to be the case, right? And, and, and the piece you mentioned is really a great read and sort of a fantastic survey of, of all this practice, which exists, which I find fascinating. And I think you're right in saying that there, there are a number of states that seem to support him. And therefore that seems to, to strengthen his legal case as it were. But that states are a little bit more reluctant to do anything meaningful with that recognition. And we see this play out also in the context of the UK. So in, in the context of the ongoing litigation as to who should have access to Venezuela's gold in the Bank of England, the matter is now going to, to the UK Supreme Court because you have the UK government uh, making a statement that it recognizes Juan Guaido, but nevertheless, 
apparently retaining diplomatic relations with uh, through Nicolas Maduro's representatives. And so there seems to be limits as to what states are willing to do based on, on their apparent recognition of Juan Guaido. So I think that presents a really interesting situation where you've mentioned in, in the context of ASEAN that the uh, the representative of the military is allowed to participate. Then we see Venezuela largely being recognized or Guaido's government not being recognized at international organizations. So, so could we say that even though international law has developed towards democratic legitimacy, when we see it on ground, not a lot has changed historically where still states prefer, whether for practical reasons or others, prefer to deal with individuals that are or presidents or governments which are ineffective control because those are the governments that they can actually conduct their relations with. So, so would you say that the historic trend is sort of still very pervasive? Yeah, and, and while you were speaking, you got me thinking exactly about that question you asked earlier, right, about sort of why are we dealing with, with these entities that can't really secure compliance with the obligations of the state? And I don't know what, what goes on in the minds of, of diplomats and governments, but I would suspect that that may well have something to do with it, right? You want to deal with, with the person or the entity that's in control of the territory and the population. You may have your own, and by you, I mean, you know, another state may have its own citizens there, may have other reasons for which you would want to deal um, with, with the person or entity in control, commercial or, or other international interests or whatever it may be. And so there is, I think, some willingness to, to find creative ways to deal with the regime's ineffective control. And that said, it seems to be a complex thing, right? Because there are cases where there's enough pressure, it seems to be, that whoever is democratically elected but not in control is able quickly to claim power. So Cote d'Ivoire and the Gambia, I think, are, are good examples of that, where you had incumbent presidents who said, you know, we didn't lose the election or, or either we won, either I won the election or the election was was rigged and we have to do it again or, or whatever the precise sort of justification may be. But there seems to be enough pressure domestically and internationally that eventually they they concede and 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 they you know they allow the transition democratic transition of power to occur. But when that doesn't take place, I think I think you're you're right that the, that states find ways still to deal with those in effective control. Great. So that brings me to perhaps a very naive question when we know about the nature of international law, but but we, we do know now that there exists a framework, but the controversies are not coming to an end. So, so I, do you attribute this to sort of some of the political aspects that come into the application of international law? How, how would you address this question? There's probably a few things that are relevant, right? So. I think there's value in having a legal framework. I think it, it provides some objective basis on which we can base our discussion. We can say, okay, we're accepting this person because they are constitutionally elected or because whatever whatever relevant consideration may be pertinent to that situation. 
but the existence of a clear legal standard it doesn't mean that there's always that the application of that standard or that, that rule is clear right and and this is not specific to governments it's it's the reason it's one of the reasons why we have courts and tribunals is to apply uh, legal rules to specific facts where the application may not always be straightforward but i think it would also be naive of me to say that it's just legal controversies or uncertainties that, that inform the debate and that inform the decisions of states. I think it would not be a reach to say that states may take a certain stance on, say, the constitutionality of a specific claim, depending on who they would rather uh, see in power. And, and we do see these controversies, which typically arise from internal political tensions and difficulties, which then different states, depending on the side, the side they support or depending on who they perceive to be the, the lawful government, then, you know, acting according to their respective views. Right. So I, I think that sort of is, is perhaps a good ending point for this podcast. Just, just a few questions before we conclude. Uh, in an ideal world where uh, international laws compliance would be perfect, what would you say would be the obligations of the international community and perhaps even international organizations uh, in terms of these situations? And what I mean by that is, for example, there is the obligation to of non-assistance in, in situations where are, there are violations of your Kogan's norms. So in an ideal world, what would states what should states be doing in situations where we, we see competing regimes where one is, you know, the legitimate government and the other just has effective control? That's probably the, the trickiest question yet. Um, well, I think what's in my view of crucial importance is constructive discussion and, and cooperation, right? Controversies arise, political differences exist. Uh, these seem to be unavoidable facets of, of life. But what, what seems to be avoidable is much of the um, trauma, distress, and violence that often follows these sorts of situations uh, where there is protracted crisis or uncertainty. And not only in terms of uh you know police clashing with protesters but also in more indirect ways where a state can't secure access to funds because we don't know who we're dealing with as the president and all this sort of thing so ideally what what i would like to see is when these situations arise is for there to be constructive dialogue um which does exist sometimes we see this again in honduras you had two rival claims they eventually worked it out um at least for some time and and seemingly resolved that situation. In Cambodia in 1990, there was again another settlement on who should have been the government in that situation. I guess what, what that is the main thing uh, I would like to see in those sorts of situations, uh, principally to avoid these protracted difficulties, which which are unpleasant to say the least, and and very difficult for many 
Um, right. And this brings us to an end of the podcast. We, we hope you liked today's discussion and we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks very much.